Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, right, with the Holy Spirit, ready to study the word where God the Holy Spirit will teach us and make these things clear and challenge us with application. I have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word that is so clear to us that throughout your word you have expressed your will for our lives. You have taught us about yourself through a variety of literature that enables us to learn so many different facets of your will. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the life of Joseph, we pray that we might be responsive to the things that we learn here because these deal with issues that are often very difficult for us in terms of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. As we've gone through Genesis, I've noted several times that it's important to correlate the main doctrinal emphases in many passages, many narratives in Genesis with New Testament principles. New Testament, we often have uh, very didactic type of passages, passages that are direct, that say this is what you do, don't do this, do this, that kind of a thing. And we see these principles as they're worked out in the flesh and blood of Old Testament characters. And so we run into uh, a very difficult concept that is illustrated in uh, the life of Joseph. There are two things that come across in the life of Joseph. One relates to Romans 8.28, that no matter what happens here, God is at work behind the scenes pulling everything together to accomplish his sovereign will. And we see that in every chapter. But another thing that we see that is as significant and as important doctrinally has to do with what we call the doctrine of impersonal love or unconditional love, specifically related to forgiveness. And often we have problems when we talk about forgiving someone who has truly hurt us or has caused pain in our lives, someone who has uh, perhaps betrayed us in numerous ways, that when we come to passages such as the one we're looking at right now in Matthew 18, 21, and 22, 
we just have difficulty trying to figure out, okay, how do we forgive this person and then do we just let them stab us in the back all over again? Do we just continue to uh, let this person uh, treat us in the same manner? We know that they'll come to us and they ask forgiveness. I mean, we can think of all kinds of different scenarios. The ones that come to my mind are situations that involve someone who's abused by a parent or a spouse or some situation like that, and then the person seeks forgiveness, or you deal with somebody who's an alcoholic, someone who's addicted to drugs, and then they they go through this period of remorse, and I'm never going to do it again, and they seem so sincere, and things might go well for a while, and then they do it all over again, and in the process, eventually people people get to the point where, how long do I just get abused, uh, get walked over in the case of a of a wife that is married to a husband that is very abusive, you get into the difficult nitty-gritty of how long do you let him just uh, absolutely destroy you, get into the bank accounts and take all the, steal all the money and spend it uh, unwisely, and all these different kinds of things that happen. Where do you, what are the lines here between forgiveness and restoration of trust? And I've really never heard... Uh, too many people break it down quite this way. And as I've gone through what's happening in Genesis 42 through 45 is <clears throat> that we see a great picture of this distinction between forgiveness and trust. And so I thought we'd go look at a couple of passages quickly in, uh, in the New Testament to sort of set up this as a framework. In Matthew 18:21, Peter comes to the Lord and says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? See, Peter's thinking in terms of, okay, I'll forgive him once or twice. I might even go as far as to forgive him seven times. But if this is something that happens day in and day out, or it's extremely egregious, or they just continue to go through this cycle of uh, sincere remorse, sincere remorse and repentance, and then they do it all over again. How long does that go? And you know, you could ask all kinds of other questions, like, well, is this someone that you're tied to uh, <clears throat> biologically? Is this a son or a daughter? I think it's interesting to watch some people to see how the forgiveness cycle works when it's a when it's somebody they deeply love, a longtime friend, versus somebody who isn't. I mean, sometimes we're willing to extend a lot of forgiveness and a lot of leeway to somebody who's not, who's very close to us, rather, uh, than someone who's, who's not. And if we're tied to them biologically, a lot of times we'll let that, that go on. Uh, I remember a time when I had a uh, distant relative uh, that I had gone to uh, high school with. We had sort of grown up together. We knew each other's kids. It was a cousin, distant cousin, and uh, he had tremendous uh, drug problems, and I remember when his parents had to uh, reach a point where they had to make a decision and say, okay, this cycle's gone on long enough, we're just going to let you go to jail, and you're just going to have to reap your consequences, and it was about about 20 years before there was any communication restored, and somewhere in there, he, he got saved, which made a difference. And so we wrestle with this whole issue because there's one thing I think that I never hear about is making a distinction between forgiving somebody and then restoring them to a position of trust where we make ourselves vulnerable to that person again. Uh, there's a point in there of wisdom. I, I often 
talked and discussed about the fact that if a wife is in an abusive system uh, situation, there's a point of wisdom there where she's not supposed to commit suicide and continue to put herself in, in the path of harm's, harm's way. It's one thing to forgive the person, so we have to talk about what forgiveness is, but it's another thing to put yourself back in a position where you know uh, physical harm or some other levels of, of, of harm are going to happen all over again. And so the concept of forgiveness, in some senses, we always have to factor in what happens on the um, in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But in some senses, forgiveness means an absence of mental attitude sins. Is we're not going to hold it against them in our own soul, in our own mentality. We're not going to have bitterness, mental attitude sins of anger, resentment. Uh, we have to get to a point where whenever that person comes up, and that can be very difficult for some people in some situations, if they've gone through a harsh abuse, violence uh, over a long period of time to where they think about that person and not just vibrate right off the chair with all of the uh, anger, resentment, everything else that builds up, which is understandable, but you have to deal with it as a believer with the grace of God, and sometimes that takes uh, some time of spiritual growth before you can do that. So Peter approaches the Lord and says, well, I can understand forgiving them more than once, but he puts a finite box on it up to seven times. When Jesus answers him in verse 22, he says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 7, which is 490 times. But the multiple use of 7s there, Jesus is really saying you just never stop. Then when you turn over to a parallel passage, which is in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching the same thing in a slightly different context and states it in a slightly different way. And in 17.4, Jesus says, well, it looks like I wrote down the wrong cross-reference. Is that right? Or am I looking at the wrong chart? Seventeen four. Take heed to yourselves. Your, oh, take heed to yourselves. <clears throat> take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And the word there, we studied this before when we were going through the relationship between repentance and forgiveness, confession and repentance. If he repents, that is, if he changes his mind about what he's done to you, uh, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, that's a pretty extreme case, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, for a lot of us, that just seems like, well, why do I keep putting myself in, myself in some sort of situation where I'm just going to get, I could even get killed in that process. And I think we see an illustration of this relationship of forgiveness and wisdom in Joseph. So let's go back and look at our passage, and we'll go back and pick up chapter 42 because it's been a few weeks since we were there. We remember what has happened with Joseph's relationships to his brothers. Uh, Joseph loved his father dearly. He loved Jacob Dearly, he was Jacob's favorite. Benjamin is still a young child, three or four years of age, when the events back in chapter uh, 37 take place when Joseph is sold into slavery. But his brothers are abusive to him. They're so angry they can hardly talk to him. And eventually they, they 
hatch, hatch a plot to to uh, kill him. They had this conspiracy. We're just going to kill him. And then they decide, no, no, let's. Judah comes along, if you remember, and Judah says, well, let's not kill him. There's no money in that. Let's just sell him as a slave. And so they sell him in, into slavery. And they come back and they very callously just tell Jacob that, well, you've lost a son. He's he's dead. And uh, they just they just move on. Now, Joseph's been the object of their hatred, of their anger, of a lot of uh, their resentment, and they attempted to kill him. So now when we get to chapter 42, a number of years have gone by, possibly as much as 20 years, 19, 20, 21 years probably. We don't know precisely. We have a period there where he is uh, spends about 12 or 13 years about ten years as a as a slave to Potiphar, two to three years when he's in in prison, and then the first seven years of plenty have gone by, and he's into the first probably two or three years of that seven year famine cycle. So a lot of time has gone by, and I, that's an element in anyone's life when the, when they've been uh, truly abused or mistreated that it takes time to work through the application process. I think that if Joseph had had to confront his brothers sometime earlier when he was still in prison, he might not have been as gracious as he is when he gets to chapter chapter 42. But he's worked through this, he's grace-oriented, and there's no indication that he bears any sort of resentment or anger or hatred or any desire for revenge on his brothers. There's no hint of that. He treats them with kindness and generosity from the very beginning of their appearance before him. So that indicates that Joseph has truly forgiven them. There's no mental attitude sin there, and forgiveness isn't just an absence of mental attitude sin. It is doing well for the person. We see that as part of impersonal love in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not just a matter of, of helping the person, but going the extra mile in helping them, not only giving the shirt off your back, but the jacket off your back, helping them as much as you can. But that doesn't necessarily mean you do stupid things like put yourself in a position where you're going to get just as abused or mistreated again. And what we see in chapters 42, 43, and 44 is that Joseph is putting the brothers through a variety of tests to see if they're still the same selfish, ornery, antagonistic brothers that they were before. Are they still so focused on what they're going to get out of the inheritance and the blessing? Are they still filled with jealousy towards the favored son, or have they matured? And basically, he's trying to find out whether he can trust them by revealing his identity, that he is indeed their brother. And so he puts them through this series of tests before he gets to that position where he can trust him. So I think we can say that there's a clear distinction between forgiving somebody, which is a personal mental attitude. It's got to go in the Lord's hands. Justice, you know, we, we have a passage in Romans 12 which says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And that's really a bad translation. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word that is, uh, that is initially used there doesn't mean personal vindictiveness. You know, when we read vengeance, that's what we hear is that we're going to get back at that person. The Hebrew word there is a word that indicates 
uh, judicial retribution. And since it comes from God, it is totally consistent with his righteousness. God isn't saying, I'm going to fulfill your desires for personal vengeance, which is how a lot of people hear that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It is judicial retribution uh, is going to come from the Supreme Court of Heaven, and God will deal with it. And then we can go about the process of moving forward and demonstrating the righteous love of God. Often in the past I've taught about the relationship between the righteousness of God as the standard for his, his integrity and the justice of God as the application of his righteousness towards his creatures and the love of God, which is uh, God's <clears throat> reaching out to his creatures to do that which is the best and uh, the best thing that can be done in their interest and best being a qualitative value-oriented word always relates back to righteousness. We have a problem when we say, well, I'm going to do what's right for you. Well, <clears throat> unless you're, you've got a measure of integrity and virtue from the word of God, a lot of times when somebody says, I'm going to do what's right for you, it's what's right for you in light of my agenda for you. And so uh, doing what's best or what's in the best interest of other people really demands a level of objectivity that can only come from orientation to the Word of God and understanding uh, <clears throat> objective absolutes. So we have these three uh, attributes of God, his righteousness, his justice, and, a lo- and his love, which we've often talked about in terms of his integrity. But I think one of the reasons that's put together that way is because you have people who come along and ask the question, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? How can a loving God let there be uh, these wars or famines or let little children die and all these wonderful sentimental things that people talk about? How can God be loving and let these things happen? And that's because they divorce the love of God from the righteousness of God. So I've been thinking about this a little lately, and I think that a good way to just, as a as sort of a shortcut for talking about this, is to talk about God's righteous love. That pulls it together. You have his righteous love. That's his righteousness and justice combined with his love as one concept. And so we're able, as believers, because God's justice, if we understand it right and can relax in it, God's justice is going to handle the situation. Whatever injustice was brought our way, God's justice is going to eventually deal with it. We may not see it. We may not witness it. We may not get to rub our hands together and enjoy it like our little sin nature would like. But God's justice is going to... And he has some really interesting ways of dealing with that. And and what goes on in the life of Judah here is one of those interesting little dynamics, how God... Is, it's rather ironical how God's divine discipline works because Judah, as the older brother now, Reuben has already discredited himself, so Judah's the next one in line. And we had the episode with Judah in chapter, uh, chapter 38. One of the other things that comes out of that is Judah is the one who callously removes the favored son from dear old daddy. And he treats that loss rather cavalierly. But what happens to Judah? God takes out his first two sons in the sin unto death. And then it's only in that episode with his daughter-in-law who is forcing him to give the third son to her to raise up a seed and they have the whole incestuous thing that he becomes finally convicted 
uh, in a biblical sense of his sin. He realizes what a failure his life has become and how he's just messed everything up. And that's the starting point. That's when he is truly humbled. And the picture that we see of Judah in these next few chapters is of a changed man who becomes a leader within within the family among the brothers, but it's a leadership that is based on humility and that he truly has a sense of humility. And when he deals with his father and when he deals with Joseph, it is a man who is no longer arrogant and self-serving, but a man who has truly been humbled. And so he can rise to that level of leadership. This is why, we, as I pointed out before, when we get down to Genesis 49 and Jacob uh, prophesies about the destiny of each of the sons, it is Jacob who gets the... Uh, the the blessing Joseph gets the the double blessing and ja- uh, Jacob Joseph and uh, uh, J- uh, Judah gets the um, gets a blessing because he's the one who's through whom the Savior is going to come the scepter of of reigning is not going to pass from the tribe of Judah because he's learned what it is to be a true leader which is to be humble and that is exactly what Jesus teaches and exemplifies when he comes along and he says that I didn't come to be served but to seek and to save and to serve many. So it makes uh, Judah learns his difference. So we have to watch what goes on with Judah in these episodes. So as we went through chapter 42, we saw the opening introduction to what is really a lengthy section that uh, we chop it up because it is so long, but it actually goes through the end of chapter uh, 45, when we see the final uh, <clears throat> restitution uh, and reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers down through chapter 45. But it begins with the, the realization of the consequences of the famine on Jacob and the family back in Canaan in verses 1 through 5, where he sends the brothers to go buy grain in Egypt. And this sets the stage for their uh, encounter with Joseph. And then in verses 6 down through 26, we saw how uh, the brothers see Joseph. Joseph realizes who they are, recognizes them. They don't re- recognize him at all because he is dressed like an Egyptian. His head is shaved. Uh, he's got, he doesn't have a beard. His fa- he's clean shaven. Uh, he's wearing all the clothing of an Egyptian. Of course, he's 20 years older. So they don't recognize him at all. They expect that he would be dead. He, they, they don't make any connection. And God begins to test them through Joseph to expose their guilt and restore them to fellowship. And there's this, this dynamic that's going on here of guilt. They are so guilty. They are ridden. They are guilty in the true sense of guilt, and I went over that, the difference between true guilt, which is a violation of God's standard, that's what sin is, is breaking God's, uh, violating God's character, and guilt feelings, which is the remorse that we feel. And sometimes after we're forgiven, when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, people still feel remorse. That's when you get into guilt feelings that are a sin. Guilt feelings before 1 John 1, 9 are not a sin. That's just part of the consequences of violating God's standard and what God uses to perhaps bring us back to the point of confession. But once we've confessed it, guilt feelings are wrong because if you feel guilty, you're basically saying, well, it's still a problem and God hasn't forgiven me. So now you're compounding your sin. We have to confess our sins and forget about it and move on because God has already done that. 
So, but God has to deal with these brothers. Their guilt has to be exposed and there has to be an admission and recognition of it on their part before there's going to be a full restoration of fellowship on the part of, of the two brothers. So, we, I pointed out two principles. One was the guilt has to be acknowledged. We have to acknowledge that when, it, when we're violating God's standard, we have to admit our guilt to God in confession of sin, but also when we offend other people and it is known by them. Now, sometimes we say things or do things that offend other people and they don't know it and it just doesn't need to be brought up and create more problems. But when uh, guilt has been acknowledged, or, or, or rather when when we violated somebody else then uh, and they know it, we need to admit that guilt for restoration of fellowship. And on the other hand, when people come to us and they admit that they were wrong, then it is incumbent upon us to forgive them, 70 times 7. But how, what do you do next in terms of that restoration, that full restoration of reconciliation? So we have an example of that in Joseph. So the brothers come before Joseph in chapter 42. Uh, they don't recognize him. He recognizes them, and he begins to set up uh, this situation. He tests the brothers. All of them are put in. Uh, were, were first going to stay in prison until the youngest one came, but then the next day he changes his mind. He says, y'all go back and pick up Benjamin and leave uh, uh, Simeon behind. So Simeon, Simeon stays back as a guarantee, as a pledge, to guarantee their eventual return. Now, they were gone for a while because by the time we come to chapter 43, we learn that they went home and they stayed there until they've eaten all of the grain that they brought back on the first trip. Now, imagine Simeon is sitting back there in Egypt wondering just, well, are they just going to leave me here to rot in prison? Uh, he knows their history, so there, there's a whole different dynamic going on in in Simeon's soul as he's having to deal with the guilt because he's probably thinking, well, God is probably uh, finally uh, bringing all of this home to roost on me, and I'm the one who's having to pay for it all. But what happens back in the land of Canaan so is brought to uh, focus in 43.1. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, so this simply uh, brings us up, sets the, gives us the setting for the second uh, act, we might say, in this in this drama. They've eaten up all the grain, and you get the, they're going to get him, they're sitting around the table, and this is the last of the food, Dad. What are we going to do now? And you get the impression that this is not the first time they've had this discussion. There's a real sense of irritability as also resigna- resignation to that which is inevitable on the part of Jacob, who, if you notice in this passage, he's referred to as Israel. What does Israel remind you of? What does that name remind you of? Remember, that name was given to him because he was the one who wrestled with God at a place called Peniel. And I think that what's happening in all this is he's wrestling with the fact that he knows the only way they're going to get more food is because of this condition that Joseph has said that you guys can't come back unless you bring your younger brother. All this time, Jacob is wrestling with the fact that it's going to get to this point and he's going to be forced 
by circumstances to do what he really doesn't want to do. The last thing he wants to do, which is is to lose sight of his favorite son now, uh, Benjamin. He's already lost one son, and he doesn't want to lose this one. So uh, I think that the, the reason we have the name Israel used here instead of Jacob is because it's it's just a little textual reminder of this fact that he's been wrestling with with this, and there's been this ongoing argument with the brothers who want him to, to send him back, and he doesn't want to do it. But he now gets to that point where he recognizes he has to. So we have two basic scenes in this act in chapter 43. The first scene covers the first 14 verses where they are at home, and we see Judah stepping to the forefront and taking up the reins of leadership among the brothers. And then the uh, second part of this chapter, the second act, picks up in verse 15 and goes from cha- from verse 15 down to the uh, end of the chapter when they go back and they're back in Egypt with uh, with Joseph. So let's look at the first scene, what happens uh, around the dinner table, as it were, with with Jacob and the sons. Jacob finally recognizes that they have to go get more food, and so he says to them in the end of verse 2, go back and bring us a little food. And Judah steps up. He's the one in the forefront. He is the spokesman for the brothers now, and he says, the man. You always want to know where that idiom came from, the man. Well, this is it. You didn't know it came from the Bible. The man doesn't call him by name, doesn't call him by title. He's the man. The man says, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Notice he starts with that and he ends with it at the end of verse 5. He says again, so he, he brackets what he's going to say. Remember, this man, the man said, you're not coming back. You're not going to see me again unless you bring your brother. This is an uh non-negotiable condition that uh, the man has set up. And verse 4 is in the center of this. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. So Judah's got him over a barrel. He knows that the only way they're going to get food, the only way his children, his grandchildren, others in the house are going to be provided for, is if he's willing to relax his grip on that which he loves the most, which is his son Benjamin. And so Israel responds in verse 6. We have his first reaction because that's what it is. It is a, a reaction. And he's irritated. He's You can just hear it. He's resentful. You've been in that situation where finally gets to the point where the only thing left to do, the only choice that's left is to do what you really don't want to do. But see, that's how God in his sovereignty often works to get, a, get his sovereign will accomplished. God is working behind the scenes here to move the whole family to Egypt. Jacob doesn't know that. He does not understand what God's plan is. God's not revealing it to him in that way. He's handling this situation through the dynamics of all these different events, including the famine. This is how God works unseen behind the scenes. This is his sovereign manipulation of history. So he puts the pressure on uh, Israel by circumstances, and he has to do this, but he doesn't want to do it. And you just, you just feel his reaction, his irritation 
and resentment at having to do this. So the brothers then answer in verse 7 by simply reiterating what the man said. They say the same thing. The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? How in the world could we be held accountable for this? When he's asking about the family. And so then uh, Judah steps up and gives his second speech in verses 8 through 10. And this time he takes responsibility for Benjamin. Uh, he urges Jacob to let them go and appeals to him to release Benjamin in their care. And he makes a deal in verse 9. He says, I myself will be surety. I'll be the pledge for him. From my hand, you will require him. Now, if you remember, uh, Reuben had uh, tried to make a deal like this earlier in verse 37 of the last chapter, and he told his father, if I don't come back, just kill my two sons. But there was an emptiness to that promise. When Judah makes this deal and says, "My life, I'll stand my life in surety for Benjamin, Jacob's fully aware of what has gone on in the last 20 years in Judah's life, that he has lost two sons, and he's seen this transformation uh, in his son as an only a parent uh, can understand that transformation and see it in one of their children. And so uh, <clears throat> Judah makes an argument that is acceptable now to Jacob. And so their father then responds in verses 11 through 14, and now he has uh, given in, and he says, if you have to do this, and he understands that they should, he says, first of all, take some of the best fruits in the land in your vessels. Go back with a present. This will open up uh, a pathway, and perhaps the uh, attitude of the man will be more generous if you take him uh, take him a gift from the uh, <clears throat> from the fruits of the land, the balm and honey, the spices, the myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. These were the uh, this this is a typical agricultural production of Canaan that was exported to other countries. So this was valued in Canaan. So as you can see, the the famine is not so severe that there's not something there. And he has uh, honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds to send down to Egypt. And he, secondly, he says, take double the money back. And this double the money is to make up for the fact that, if you remember, when they left, Joseph had had all the money that they had brought down to buy the grain put secretively put back in their grain sacks. And so he says, you've got to go back, take back the money. Uh, they're going to think you stole it. So you need to take that money back. You need to make full restitution, even though you didn't steal it. You need to demonstrate that that you have it and that you're completely innocent. Take back the money, re, uh, return it. That was the third thing. Take the re money back. It was found in the grain sacks. And fourth, take your brother. So he gives them this destruction instruction and concludes by saying, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. This is his blessing upon them. And he uses the name of God, El Shaddai, which first is introduced to us back in Genesis 17.1. It is a title that's used 48 times in the Old Testament for God, and most often it's used in Job. It is typical of the oldest literature in the Old Testament. 
we don't know exactly what it means. Some people suggested about a hundred years ago that it had something to do with the mountains, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. The Septuagint, the, the, uh, the rabbis who translated the Old Testament into Greek, translated it with the Greek word pantokrator, which means the Almighty, the all-powerful one, and it emphasizes God's omniscience, I mean, excuse me, his omnipotence and his ability to perform whatever he desires. The rabbis analyze the word as meaning the one who is completely self-sufficient. So he's focusing on the power of God to protect them and watch over them as they, as they go back. Then we come to verse 15, and in verse 15 we see the, the story of his return and how they link up with Joseph again. So the men took the present, Benjamin, they took the double money in their hand, rose and went down to Egypt, stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin, and Benjamin becomes a focal point here, he recognizes what they've done. So they pass this first test. They've come back, they've brought Benjamin, and he talks to his steward. That's the administrator of his household. This would be probably his, his primary assistant who managed uh, managed all of his accounts. And he said, take these men to my home, slaughter an animal, make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. So he's going to lay out a banquet for them for the noon meal. The man did as Joseph was, Joseph ordered, took the men back to his house, which would have been quite, uh, quite a palatial dwelling. And the men now are afraid. Why are they afraid? Guilt. That's what this word for fear indicates is, okay, what have we done now? Why is he treating us like this? And they've got this guilty conscience, and they know what they've done with Joseph, and they're afraid they're, that God's going to make them lose Benjamin, and they're, they're fearful. And this is brought out in a couple of different words uh, throughout this chapter. So they're fearful of what's going to happen, and it, this guilt makes them such that they, they think, okay, it's because of the money. They think we stole that money, and now we're going to get in trouble, and he's going to do something to us. And so they pull the steward aside in verse 20, and they say, sir, we, we came down here the first time to buy food. And they just confess this thing. They say, look, we didn't have anything to do with it. This money just showed up in our sacks. And they just summarize the event. And at the end, the man calms him down and says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sack. Uh, uh, I have your money. That's not, you can keep it, keep your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So now there is a restitution with Simeon. He must have been glad to have seen that the brothers had finally shown up. So the man, um, verse 24, the man brought the men into Joseph's house, feeds them, wa- they, they wash their feet, they feed their donkeys, he treats them quite generously, and then they prepare the noon meal. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand. They, they treat him with respect and deference. Throughout this whole thing, of course, the steward would have given Joseph a report. There's no sign that they're arrogant. They're not reactive to Joseph. There seems to be genuine contrition and remorse on their part and humility and authority orientation and they are not coming as if they are antagonistic or filled with their own self-importance. Now, I, the one reason I make that note is that there was a, a view that was set forth by the rabbis 
in some of the midrashes on this chapter where they they try because of the fact that Judah later becomes the uh, progenitor of the tribe from which the Lord comes and the scepter is not going to depart from the tribe of Judah. And so the there was this idea that because of that verse that Judah had to be portrayed as someone who's acting uh, kingly and with authority and that he would have challenged, he actually was challenging Joseph's authority here. But you see, that, that just shows how the rabbis had really turned everything around where leadership was uh, lording it over everyone, which is exactly what the Lord criticized uh, when he was on the earth, that leadership isn't lording it over everyone. Leadership is being a servant of all. It is based on humility. And if you, it's the old adage that if you don't learn to follow, in other words, to be respectful of authority and to be under authority, you can never be a good leader. So Joseph comes back. And the first thing he asked them is about his father. This is so crucial here. Joseph's concern is about how are you treating your father? How they treat their father and their attitude to their father is going to say an awful lot about what's happened in their soul. And the second thing he's going to watch is how they treat Benjamin. Now watch this. Verse 26, Joseph came home. He's still testing them. He says, is your father... Well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. Notice the respect and the honor in the way they are talking about their father. He's in good health, he's still alive, and then they bow down and they prostrate themselves uh, before Joseph. Incidentally, it's the same word that's translated places uh, as worship. Verse 29, they lifted his eyes saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and says, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And, and he said to Benjamin then, this last phrase is directed to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. So he is singling out Benjamin for special attention and special favor. And then we have almost a parenthetical uh, insert in verse 30 that his heart yearned for his brother. He is just so overwhelmed with emotion at this stage, and we see this with Joseph. It's very emotional, but he keeps it under control. As soon as he recognizes this, he gets out of the room, gets off to a place of privacy, uh, deals with his emotion, weeps, and then he takes washes his face until he can regain control of himself, and then he comes back out to have dinner. Now, he set the dinner up so that he's over here on one side because Egyptians would never have anything to do with any of the Canaanites. They just despised the Canaanites. They had, they had more prejudice against the Canaanites than, than any, any clansman ever had towards a black person in the South. I mean, they just, dis- they, the Egyptians despised the Jews. And that's why later on, when the family moves down, they give them their own place to live up in Goshen. They don't want to have anything to do with them whatsoever. Part of this had to do with their religion, and part of it had to do with just racial prejudice. So Joseph, in the role of an Egyptian, sets a place by himself. Uh, the Egyptians ate with him by themselves, and then uh, the Hebrews ate in their own place. But they set them down. Now, notice this. You're one of the brothers, and all of a sudden you sit down to eat, and you look around, and you recognize that we've all been put in birth order. How'd that happen? 
I mean, it almost takes you back to some of these gothic uh, horror stories where somebody goes into the castle and you hear doors close and, and all of a sudden the food mysteriously appears and all this, and you start, this is really spooky. How did he know the precise birth order? And there's Benjamin, and Benjamin's at a place of honor, and he has five times as much food on his plate as the rest of us. What's going on here? Is God getting us? What God's going to make us pay for that with Joseph? They are just being brought to this point of, of genuine uh, uh, repentance in the sense of change over what had happened uh, much earlier as they have to deal with their guilt. And it says that the men looked in astonishment at one another when they realized they were set in birth order and the Hebrew word there for astonishment means fear or anxiety. It's not just a sense of wonder. It's a sense of, uh-oh, this isn't right. This is, this is spooky and we're in trouble now. What's going to happen? And then he blesses Benjamin. Now, when we come to chapter 44, we get into the final test. <clears throat> this is where things really get interesting. And we see how Joseph, sti- he, oh, oh, one more thing. When Joseph sets this situation up with with Benjamin and puts him in that place of, of honor in verse 34, he's testing the brothers. Are they going to become jealous of Benjamin as they became jealous of me? When I was honored and treated in a special way by our father, they became very jealous and resentful. Now that I'm putting Benjamin in a place of honor and treating him with special privilege, are they going to react in the same way? He's testing them to see if they've gotten past all of their self-absorption. And he does one other thing. He gives them a lot of beer. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, it was either beer or wine, but it was probably beer. They drank and were merry. The New King James says they were merry. The Hebrew word means they were drunk. He wanted to loosen them up. He wanted to put them in a situation where they're, they're, uh, they would become in, uninhibited and their inhibitions would drop down. And if there was any resentment or anger or anything like that towards Benjamin, that it would come out in their casual conversation. So they didn't have any other alcoholic beverages at that time. You either had wine or beer, and beer was more common in Egypt with the grain, so that they were probably given beer. So... They had a very good lunch. Now, they've passed that test. Now he's going to give them one final test. In chapter 44, verse 1. He commanded the steward, now, fill, here's what I want you to do. Fill up their grain sacks with food, as much as they can possibly carry, and then put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. Put their money back in there. And then take my silver cup, it's clearly his special cup, and put it in the sack of the youngest. We're going to frame the youngest with a crime and see how the brothers react. I mean, they can just cut and run. If they're still jealous of his position, that he's the one who's going to receive the inheritance from the father, then they're going to look at this and say, okay, great. What a great opportunity to ditch Benjamin, and now we'll get uh, get that inheritance. And so... He's, he's going to frame Benjamin. So he sets up the trap. And as, verse 3, as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And when they'd gone out of the city, they're not far off. Joseph then set, sent his steward and said, go after them and overtake them. 
uh, challenge them with what they've done, open up the sacks, reveal what they've done, and let's see how they're going to react. They'll be charged with uh, doing evil, with criminal activity, with stealing the money. And so in verse 7, the steward catches up with with them, and the brothers are as honest as they can be. Verse 8, Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver and gold from your Lord? We've already demonstrated our honesty. Why would we uh, steal from him now? Uh, If you find anything here, if any of these men have stolen anything, they're so convinced of their rectitude, then he'll sacrifice his life right on the spot. And we'll all be slaves of the man. Verse 10. Now also let it be according to your words. Uh, He with whom it is found should be my slave. You should be blameless. And they go on and they begin to open up all their sacks. And I imagine the scene as they open their sacks and saw their money in there in light of what they just said. And then Benjamin opens his sack in verse 12, and there's the cup. And they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey, returned to the city. And then I want you to notice something. Verse 14, so Judah. Verse 16, then Judah. Verse 18, then Judah. And then from 18 down through verse 34, we have the longest speech in all of Genesis. This is all Judah's speech. He is the one who steps forward as to take the leadership position among uh, among the brothers. So when they go back, <clears throat> Judah steps forward. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, What have you done? Begins to uh, inquire what they've done. And then verse 16, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And so he, what does he do? He's he's confessing more. They didn't do anything wrong, but he's going to confess to it. They are so riddled with guilt, they'll confess to anything. And then, verse 18, we have his response. Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, He's, he shows proper... Pl- There's no arrogance here. He is going to plead a case for grace that would do anyone honor. He is not arrogant. He's not self-serving. And there is a focal point to everything that he says. He uses the word Father 14 times between verse 18 and verse 34. The whole focus of his argument to Joseph is what this is going to do to our father. And he demonstrates such a concern for his father that it breaks Joseph's heart because he sees how these brothers have changed their whole mental attitude and how they are so concerned about Jacob and they're not at all concerned about their own lives or their own position. So he begins in verse 18, O Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Don't let your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh, recognition of his authority. He says, uh, my Lord asked us if we had a father or a brother, and he rehearses in verses 19 down through uh, 24. He rehearses his father's bereavement over the loss of Joseph and why Benjamin is now the father's favorite. He is setting the stage for why this is so, why Benjamin is so important uh, to the father. And he talks about how we have a father. He has one child. He's the child of his old age and his brother's dead. 
and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servant, you bring him down. He rehearses everything that's gone on. He says, well, the lad can't leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down. So we brought him down. We did exactly what you told him to do, is this what he says. And then in verses 25 down to 34, he's going to review the interactions of his of the brothers uh, with uh, the father and how they, how he specifically offered himself as a pledge that the, the, that Benjamin would be uh, returned to his father. And so that's what happens in verses 25 and following. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we can't go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is there. So that then your servant, my father, said to us. Notice several times he refers to him as your servant, my father. There's just such such... Uh, reverence and respect towards Jacob here. And Joseph recognizes, recognizes this, and he just rehearses the whole story, which we've just gone over in chapter 43. And then he ends by saying in verse 32, For your servant, referring to himself, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brother. He says, I'll stay and be your slave for the rest of my life, but just let him go home because otherwise it'll kill our father. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? And as Joseph sees this complete change that's taken place in Judah over the last 20 years. This isn't the same brother he left that was self-serving and arrogant and filled with hatred and jealousy towards anyone who was favored above him. He's willing to give up his life for Benjamin. And uh, Joseph, just beginning of 45, then Joseph could not restrain himself. He is just going to break down emotionally, and this sets up one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible as Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brothers. But I'm going to have to leave that for next time. So that's a great scene. But in this, what we see is how Joseph, he's for, there's this forgiveness that's there in the sense of an absence of mental attitude sins and a positive graciousness towards his brothers from the very beginning. But still, there's the unwillingness to put himself in a position of vulnerability or to trust and to reveal himself to the brothers. He has to take them through a period of testing before there is full restitution. But the point that we see over and over again in Scripture is that there needs to be full forgiveness and, thing, and, and breached relationships need to always move towards restitution. Unfortunately, because of sin and carnality, it may not always end up in restitution. But it should at least get to the point of forgiveness and a relaxed mental attitude toward those who have harmed us, hurt us, betrayed us, or treated us uh, wrongly with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be challenged by the example that we have of Joseph 
and as he looks at his brothers, because as he says later, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. And a recognition that the same is true in our lives, that often the circumstances, the uh, things that happen that are uh, where we are wrongly treated, where we are abused, where we are the uh, objects of injustice, that you and your sovereignty have allowed these things to happen for a purpose and that we need to relax in your plan knowing that you are working out a greater purpose. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.